Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Morning. It's good to be with you guys. If you're, uh, if you're newish here, I see a couple new faces. Uh, it might be helpful for you to know that our normal sort of flow and, and rhythm is we, we typically go through books of, of, uh, of the Bible. Uh, we'll go through series, uh, like an entire series, walking through a particular uh, book of the Bible. Uh, but uh, for uh, January, for this particular month, uh, we want to sort of start the year uh, by touching on some some first things, as we, we call them. Some first things related to like our vision and our mission as a local church. Some of the priorities that we believe God wants us to keep tethered to as we sort of enter into the new year. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're still going to open the Bible this morning, uh, but we're, we're not in a, a book series like we, we, we normally do. Um, I, uh, really quick, I heard this, uh, this joke like maybe about 10, 10 years ago. Uh, you may have heard it before. Uh, it's uh, Stop me if you've heard this one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, this joke about 10 years ago, uh, uh, somebody said, like, how do you, uh, how did it go? He's like, how do you, <laughs> he's like, uh, he's like, hey, do you know how, uh, how you can tell uh, if someone is into CrossFit? Uh, to which you respond, no, do tell. How do you know? Uh, and the response is, uh, you don't have to because they'll tell you, right? <laughs> Remember that? Like 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, when everyone was doing CrossFit, it's like everyone who was doing CrossFit could not stop talking about doing CrossFit. And the reason is because when we're devoted to something, especially that level of devotion uh, that CrossFitters had, like at that level of devotion, when you're devoted to something, it sort of shapes what you do. It shapes how you talk. And this morning, we're going to talk about what are the things that we should devote ourselves to as a local church. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and thumb over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, as we just read, is where we're going to be. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time digging into this particular text and sort of dreaming about what the Spirit of God might do through us this year. Um, before we get into that, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to read your word, to dig into your scriptures that you've preserved throughout uh, decades and centuries that we might uh, uh, learn from you, that you might reveal yourself uh, to us. And uh, we ask, Lord, that um, you would do uh, through my mere words what, what only you can do and just breathe life into our souls this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, 
some of you might know that our churches are part of a, a couple uh, different uh, networks. We're part of this local association of churches, and we're also part of this global church planting network. And one of the blessings that comes with that is this opportunity that I have as your pastor to sit across from, from guys that are older and wiser than me in years, guys with experience in much more experience in pastoring and in church planting that, that, that sort of invite me to sort of press into them and ask questions like, like hey, what was it like when in, in the first days for you for church planting? What have you learned about how to lean into your strengths, how to grow in your weaknesses, to stay grounded on mission and deal with depression or just a discouragement? And what kind of leaders should we be investing into? What priorities should we keep at the center of, of, of who we are and and why the reason that those conversations that, that I have with these guys are so helpful and insightful for me is because I'm learning from guys who've been down this road before right that's 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 why it's so helpful for me because these guys have been down this same road before and hopefully like regardless like your vocation or season of life hopefully that in life family or business you have people like that that you can learn from too but if as a new church in the 21st century if we want maybe some like hot tips on how what, what we should devote ourselves to as a church, what sh- priorities should we have, then one of the most instructive places and helpful places we can go is to this book of the Bible, the book of Acts, to see how the first churches were planted, how they matured and grew, what their priorities were, and how they multiplied. And here's the scene leading up to our passage in Acts chapter 2. Right before the events in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Jesus had already died. He had already risen. And then in chapter 1, we see that he ascended into heaven and he tells his disciples as they're gathering, he, he tells them that the message and the work of the kingdom of God that he came to bring is now in their hands. He says, this message I came to bring, the work of the kingdom is now in your hands, he tells them. And then he ascends into heaven and he sends down the Holy Spirit. He sends down the capital H helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and, and just drops the presence and power of God down onto them. And at that moment, at that moment in history, the Spirit opens up the hearts of all the people present to the power of the gospel, and the church is born. The church is born. And in verse 41, uh, it says, of Acts chapter 2, it says that those who received his word, talking about Peter who had just preached the gospel to this, this large group of gathered people, it says those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And so the first church just bursts onto the scene after Jesus ascends. This is this when when you read like the events of Acts chapter two, it's this crazy scene, almost like the birth of a baby. There's like a lot of noise, a lot of action, a lot of commotion, and then boom, the church is born. Three thousand people get saved. They repent. They're baptized. They join together as the church. That's the scene. And then in verse forty-two, we begin to see. What are the things that this new budding spirit-filled church devoted themselves to? 
In verse 42, we begin to see the marks of a church that is shaped by the gospel. And the first thing we see, number one, is that this church was devoted to the word. The first Christians were relentlessly, unashamedly devoted to the word. We see in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, they were devoted to the word of God, to the gospel. That's what it was meant by the apostles' teaching. The apostles, if you remember from the gospels, they're, they're the, the sort of inner crew for Jesus, his inner group that he had chosen and that had, had, had followed him around. Uh, he's, they're the guys that would end up planting the first churches, the first uh, church planters in, in the region. And what they taught was what Jesus taught them, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel the truth of the Bible, how it all fits together. And we see here in Acts 2.42 that this, uh, the first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the ones who were given a unique authority to re represent Jesus to the early churches and carry on his message. Notice in verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They had respect for the apostles themselves for sure, but they were ultimately devoted, they weren't ultimately devoted to the apostles as, as, as men. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. You see, we should show up each each week here, like on Sundays when we gather on the Lord's Day, we show up not to hear from some chump in a blazer. <laughs> but with a burning desire, a hunger for the Word of God. What God has to say to us in His Word should always be more valuable to us than the person who says it. We should come hungry, thirsty to hear a word from our Maker to hear from the word of God. That's what the first Christians devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching. And that word devoted, let, let, let's talk about that for a second. Like that word devoted, you, you know that true devotion isn't, isn't just like, hey, whenever I feel like it, devotion, right? Like when you're truly devoted to something, it's not, hey, when it's convenient for me type of devotion, they say that my generation is the most commitment-averse generation. We're the, we're the FOMO generation, right? The fear of missing out generation. We commit to nothing so that we can have a little bit of everything. But the early church wasn't like that when it came to spiritual matters. The early church wasn't like that when it came to the things of God. When it came to Jesus and his word and, and the community of Jesus, it says that they were devoted Whatever it is that you are most devoted to will define you and how you live your life. Whatever you are most devoted to will define you and how you live your life, how it's shaped. And so if you're devoted ultimately to work, then that will inform how you spend your time, your money, your relationship with your family and your other relationships. If you're devoted to comfort, that will inform what you do, when you do it, who you're going to do it with. 
And what we see in Acts 2 is that when the church was in its infancy, they devoted themselves to the word. It was precious to them and it shaped them. I want you to consider this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, your relationship to this sacred book. Are these words more precious to you than gold, as the psalmist says? Are they more treasured by you than silver? Are they sweeter than honey to your lips? Do you value these words more than you do your status at work, more than your fitness routine, more than the car in your garage, more than the number of likes that you have on Instagram or Facebook? Do you have more devotion to the Word of God than your favorite team? I mean, for many of us in this room, whenever our favorite team is playing, it's like, man, we'll put that devotion on display, right? Unashamedly. Do you have some sense of devotion like that to the Word of God? Or do you look at this book as like a, just another religious chore? J.C. Ryle says that nothing so hardens the heart of man as a barren familiarity with sacred things. When we become too, so familiar to something that it becomes almost like a, a, an, an empty chore to us, that hardens our hearts. Man, it's, it, we need to be a, I, I, I want, like my prayer for us as I was uh, working on this sermon this week is that, is that we would be a church that's devoted to the Word of God like this early church's were. It's widely known that the greatest crisis of the church in 2020 is not so much secularism or atheism, but the biblical illiteracy that we have in the church. We don't know our Bibles. We don't know basic theology. And so we do this form of Christianity that's really just based on like how we feel or like our gut rather than what God has revealed. And that is why I yearn for us. That's why I yearn for you to know the word, to have the spirit of God open your eyes, to see its beauty and its wonders, to taste and see that it is good, that he is good. That's, that's why we go through the Bible on Sundays. That's why we study the Bible in our home groups. Look, I know that like in this room as I'm looking out at, at, at some of these familiar faces, I know that we're all across the spectrum when it comes to like where we're at in our faith. I know that in this room there are some of us that are really brand new to the faith. You came here a few months ago not knowing really if you believed in this whole Jesus thing and now this following Jesus is a new thing for you. Some of us in this room have been following Jesus for a long time. You know about theology. You've studied the Bible. You've studied biblical theology. And I know that there's some in this room that uh, are maybe curious skeptics or, or atheists. I know that there's some in this room that are uh, maybe have a very like religious, dry religious background and, and, and you're kind of exploring what like real, like life-giving faith looks like for the first time. And so all across the spectrum here in this room, regardless of where you're at, I need you to know that as, as a local church, we're committed to meeting you wherever you're at on that spectrum and to helping you grow in the Word. We want to do that together. We all need to be growing, and so we want to develop men and women who are confident in God and His Word so that you can be salt and light in a world that is starving 
for a taste of the transcendent. People around us who don't know the hope and the love and and the life that the gospel gives us. And so let's offer them something more than just our gut and intuition. Let's be a people that are devoted to the word. A church that treasures the word. And the second thing we learn from this first group of Christians is that they were also devoted to community. They were devoted to biblical community. We see as it continues in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, it says. You see, when revival broke out at Pentecost, which is uh, uh, what we call this time in history when the Spirit came down and the first church burst onto the scene. When that revival broke out at Pentecost and the first church was born, all kinds of people from different backgrounds were getting saved. People that were formerly considered themselves enemies because of the different classes that they came from or the different ethnic backgrounds that they came from, uh, all of a sudden were getting saved. And, that, and that, that's what happens when people get saved is that they, they, they join together in community. Because when you get saved, you're not only reconciled to God, but when you become closer to God, you're also drawn to the other people that God has saved too. You're reconciled with each other. Does that make sense? When you're closer to God, you become closer to the other people that have also been drawn closer to God. And look, and again, in this room alone, we have people of all kinds of stripes. We've got older people, younger people, single, married, people with kids, with no kids, students, uh, people with white-collar jobs, with blue-collar jobs. The Church of Jesus represents people of all kinds of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different personalities, different tastes, different political parties, different religious upbringings. We all have different backgrounds that make up our story. We have different skills, different gifts for serving and building up the church. We are, as individuals, distinct from one another, for sure. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we also have this unbreakable unity that comes with being brothers and sisters in God's family. We have diversity with unity, a unified diversity. That's what fellowship is. And look down in verse 44 and 45, it says that all who believed, all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any that had need. Their sense of fellowship and community was one of the most wild and countercultural aspects of Christianity in the first century. Nobody did that back then. An early Greek philosopher by the name of Lucian, he was, he was one of the most vocal opponents of the early Christians. He just hated Christianity. And in his early uh, writings, we, we see that he, there's this one point where he talks about how just Christianity uh, offended uh, just his Greek privilege and, and power. And he said that the, he, he, in one of his writings, he talked about how their founder, how Christianity's founder taught them that they should be like brothers to each other. And therefore that these people, these Christians, they despised their own privacy and they viewed their possessions as common property. And in his mind, in his mind, this generosity 
that the early Christians had devalued the whole concept that he had of what it meant to have power and privilege, which was everything in his world. And it was offensive to him. The one thing that struck him, the one thing that like bugged him was how nice these Christians were to each other regardless of the color of their skin or their ethnic background or the job that they had or uh, the, the class that they, class system that they came from. It offended him. You see, that kind of unity that confronted this, this Greek philosopher like Lucian is, is, is the kind of unity that the church should be marked by. And truthfully, I mean, we might not be as uh, um, critical as Lucian is, like culturally speaking, but our, our, in our culture at, at, at large, our individualistic culture is, is at odds with this type of community. We tend to believe in the sovereign self over the good of the group. I mean, think about it. This is the generation that got the word selfie added to the dictionary. Right? Like one of the ways that fellowship is fleshed out in, in, in this way that we're called the community is, 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 is not only just the way that we, we love each other and our kindness towards one another, but just the way that we, we regularly gather together, just to be together. One of the ways that fellowship is fleshed out is through regular gatherings with God's people. In verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, it says that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, you, you see this language that the early church, they regularly gathered. They had large gatherings. They also had small ones. Not only did they meet in the temple together, but they broke bread in their homes. God's people generally meet we talked about this last week, and so I won't belabor this point, but God's people have generally always historically met on Sundays called the Lord's Day because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so even the act of us gathering on Sundays is in some sense a public statement that you associate with the risen Jesus. It's always been that way. And so, and so that's our large gathering. But the early church also had small gatherings. They met in homes. We have those too. I mean, one of the ways that, that we do that is through our home groups, right? We hope that home groups aren't the only time that you enter like, each other's homes and enjoy a, a meal together. But one of, one of the reasons that we have home groups is to create this regular rhythm for us as a church to, to be with one another, to eat together, to pray together, to open up God's word together. We say that discipleship happens in, in, in rows, in circles, and, and in, in the square. And what we mean by that is this is one context for your discipleship or your growing in the faith. is when we sit in rows and when we receive the word of God. But another important context for that is when we sit in circles, like around a table, in a home group, sharing a meal together, going to lunch after church maybe. And so the early church, they, they were devoted to uh, the fellowship, to the large gatherings and the small ones. And thirdly, we also see that they were devoted to receiving communion. In verse 42, uh, back up there, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. 
Now, scholars will tell us that like when we get into the language of this, the way that the breaking of bread is used there uh, uh, in the middle of apostles' teaching and fellowship and prayer, when we see the breaking of bread, in that verse it's referring to the breaking of bread that happens when we receive communion, which might seem strange to some of us, right? Like, was this communion ritual really that important to the early church that it had to be listed in the things that they were devoted to? And the answer is yes. Yes. It was central. Communion was central to the Sunday gathering. It was as central as, as the preaching of the word. And we see that communion has two elements, right? It had bread and it had wine. And what communion is, what the Lord's Supper is, is it's acknowledging the cross of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's a way for us to remember it. But it's also more than just remembering what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says it's also a sign of Jesus' real presence with us in the here and now, in our unity with him, in him. And so we do this. When we take communion, it's an echo of, of, in some sense, of one of the most sobering nights in human history, the Last Supper, when Jesus sat down with his disciples. And the scriptures told us that on that night, he took the loaf of bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you, given for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which was shed for you. And so when we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, we as Christians are really taking part in, we could look at it like a family meal, a supernatural God-ordained family meal that remembers Jesus' last supper, reminding ourselves of the sacrifice of our Savior and experiencing his spiritual presence with us as we, as we partake in it. And it's also a public proclamation of the gospel that saves we, 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 we read this uh, once a month when we take, com uh, 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 when we take uh, communion. Uh, on the first Sunday of every month, we, we, we kind of slow down and walk through this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26 where it says, uh, uh, Paul, Paul, Paul tells them, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's saying these words to a church in Corinth, and he tells them, as often as you receive communion, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so you've, if, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me say from time to time that communion is one of the ways that you as a congregation participate in the preaching of the word, Right? Communion is one of the ways that you as a congregation participates in the preaching of the gospel. Paul says when you receive communion, you are proclaiming, you are preaching the Lord's death. You're preaching the gospel. Uh, in, the, in the Lords of the, of, of the Rings, in the Lord of the Rings, there's a, there's a character by the name of Pippin who in this one scene, he's, he's like, trapped in a city while it's getting destroyed by like hordes of, 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 of these bad guys, right? And at the last minute, 
And Pippin's like scared for his life. He's hunkering down. The city's getting destroyed. And at the last minute, he hears this loud horn in the distance. And it turns out that this, this loud horn is signifying that the good guys are here. The horn marks the moment that these knights start piling into the city, going up against the evil hordes, and they come to the rescue. And some of these, these, these heroic knights end up dying, but they save the people in the city. And in, in the book, it says that for the rest of his little hobbit life, Pippin, every time that he heard a horn, he would break down in tears, happy tears, because the horn was a tangible reminder of him, of his salvation, we could say. He relived that day that he got saved. Every time he heard a horn, he's reminded of the past sacrifice of the knights who died to save him. He could be having the worst week ever, but when that horn blows, he's overcome with this sense of peace. Why? Because the sound reminds him that every moment of his life is a gift. It reminds him that all that he knows is grace. As we say in one of the songs that we sing, all we know is grace. In the same way, the Lord's Supper, communion, is a distant horn that connects our salvation And the one who sacrificed himself, who lived, bled, and died to save you, it connects us to to him and to that gospel. And it will transform every God-given minute of your life because you know that every moment is infused with the grace of Jesus. And so when we receive communion, and in a king's cross, we take communion every single week after the sermon. Because one, that's what's modeled for us in the scriptures. And two, like the Bible says that it's a way for us to just be strengthened in our faith. Communion is one of the God-ordained, ordinary means that God uses to strengthen us in his grace. Just like praying, just like preaching of the word, that's what communion does. So, dude, it boggles my mind when, like, some, some churches are like, well, we don't want to do communion every single week because, like, when we do that, then it turns into this religious ritual and then uh, it becomes, like, monotonous and, and it loses its, its, its oomph, right? It's like, dude, we preach every week. We pray every week. We gather every week. That never loses its match. Why would we not take the Lord's Supper every week like the, like the New Testament church did? You see, when we do this, when we take communion, it's an opportunity as us as Christians to bring our sins before the Lord and to remember that he paid the penalty for that, for our sins. It's a time for us to experience in some crazy, unexplainable, supernatural way. We experience the spiritual presence of Jesus in a special and meaningful way to be nourished by his grace. It's a time for us to remember what it means to get right with God through repentance and to reflect on the gospel, his body broken, his blood shed. Why would we not do that as often as we gather like the early church did? To consider what his body went through for us to continue the sacrifice of his blood shed. It's gruesome. 
It's a gruesome picture when we receive communion, but it's also beautiful good news. And so the early church, we see that, that when they gathered, they devoted themselves to communion, not as an empty religious ritual, but because of it, it just centered them on the gospel. It reminded them every single week that the most important thing about our faith is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. So they devoted themselves to that. Uh, number four, they also devoted themselves to prayer. At the end of verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer wasn't just something that happened in the outskirts of their gatherings. It wasn't just something that they did privately at home, like at the breakfast table or, or, or by themselves, like during quiet time. When the early church gathered, they were devoted to prayer together. And here's an interesting Bible exercise for you. If you're reading the New Testament, when you scan through the Old or the New Testament, you see that there are actually more mentions of corporate gathered prayer than there is private prayer. It doesn't mean don't pray privately. Absolutely, like you should pray privately. Like Jesus even told his disciples, hey, look, like when you're praying, don't pray like that one guy, pray like this other guy. Like you should pray uh, privately. But throughout the 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 but when you, you scan the New Testament, you see that there are actually more mentions of corporate prayer than there is private prayer. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the book that we're going through right now, and the epistles of Paul, whenever a church was encouraged or commanded to pray, they were usually commanded to pray together as a church, not as individuals. Now we're such an individualistic culture that we tend to impose like this solo mentality on when we, when we read these passages on, on prayer. Uh, and there's still something for us to learn about our private prayer life and that, but, but we, we can't miss the fact that, that, that we can't undermine the community experience of prayer that God desires for us. The community experience of prayer that the early church was devoted to. It's one of the reasons that we, we, we have moments where we stop to do a prayer of confession together, where we have a liturgist come up and lead us in a time of praying and confessing our sins to the Lord and, 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 and praying together about that. That's why we pray together uh, for the tithes and, and, and offerings. Uh, uh, before the service, every uh, Sunday, uh, about 15 minutes before the service, a group of us meet outside uh, in front of the kids' classrooms, and we pray for the service together. This church was birthed through regular gatherings of prayer. And it pained me to think as I was reading this, I'm like, man, we haven't gotten together and prayed like that in, in, in a while. And so, so that's why we put it on the calendar. It's like, you know, let's just put it on the calendar. Let's have a prayer night at, uh, at the end of, of, uh, of, of next month and just pray together. Charles Spurgeon says that true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It's a spiritual commerce with the creator of heaven and earth. You see, when we pray as a church, we're engaging in a collective, together conversation with the creator of heaven and earth. 
That's why gathering to pray is one of the most God-centered things that a church can do. It's us actively together expressing our dependence on Him, our Maker. It's our de- us declaring that our will is subject to His, that our power has its limits and His does not. We're just ordinary sinners saved by grace. So we pray for God to do what only he can do among us. Like, do you want to be a part of something bigger than us? Like, who doesn't, right? If you want to be part of something bigger than us, something that's more than business as usual, then, 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 then pray and pray together. I was struck by something this week. As, as I was studying this passage, I was studying the, the verses leading up to it. In Acts chapter 1, we see uh, that Jesus uh, confirms to the, the early Christians before he ascends into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says that he's God. He died for, their, for sin. He rise, rose from the grave. He appears for 40 days. He proved that he's God. And then he gives a group of his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, he gives 120 of his disciples the biggest mission of the world to carry on the gospel, to plant churches, to make this up. He gives them the, mi- the biggest mission in the world. He says, you guys are going to go now and carry on what I gave to you, and you're going to do this in Jerusalem and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Do you know what this squad of disciples did right then after receiving that from, from Jesus, that word from Jesus? They go into Jerusalem, They cram into some upper room. And in Acts 1, verse 14, it says, all of these, all these people with one accord, in other words, together, they were devoting themselves to prayer. It's the first thing they did. After getting the biggest mission in the world, they're like, all right, let's gather in this penthouse suite and pray. Pray, pray, pray. Dude, that challenged me this week. If it was me, just given the biggest mission in the world, I'd be like, let's find a whiteboard, right? Let's strategize, let's plan, let's download that new app, let's get organized, let's do this, right? But these 120 people knew that what God told them to do was so big, was so out of this world, that they could never do it on their own. And to be clear, God does want us to be doers. He does want us to plan, to strategize, to hustle, but praying precedes doing. Praying precedes doing, especially when it comes to the mission of God. What usually happens is a lot of us are doers first. We just do, and then we break something, we screw something up, and then we pray things like, God, help me, right? Then we pray, God, help me fix this. Uh, how do I get out of this? But, but God wants us to pray before we do. Again, that's why we pray before the service. That's why we pray before we planted this church, and that's why we're having this prayer night at the end of the month. We'd love for you guys to join us at that. Join us for prayer before the service. Join us at the prayer night at the end of the month. I want you to consider, do you, do you, do you, have you been paying attention enough to where you know what's going on in our church family, and do, do, you, do you pray for those things? Do you pray for each other? Do you pray with each other? Do you gather with others and pray for our needs as a church? Do you pray for our leaders, for our covenant members, for their needs? 
in your home groups, which launch in a couple weeks. Let's pray that we learn to and grow in grace together. Let's pray for missional opportunities to serve and declare Jesus to our neighbors. See, the early church was devoted to these things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were marked by devotion to these things. It says, day by day, they did these things. Before we sort of close our Bibles on this text, I want you to see from this passage what that devotion produced in them. What that devotion produced in them. First, we saw that this type of devotion produced in them just a marveling at God's work. They marveled at God's work. Through these things, God began to give them eyes to see how he was uniquely working around them. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You know, you know what I love about this verse? Saying that awe came upon their souls. It shows how the gospel of God's undeserved grace to sinners like you and me captures our whole selves. It brought them to awe. Christianity is not just a head religion. It's also a heart, body, and soul religion too. It captures all of who you are. When the Spirit of God awakens your dead bones to the living water of Jesus Christ, it not only changes the way that you think and live, it captures your soul. It says, awe came upon every soul through just ordinary means of grace. The word, communion, prayer, through ordinary means of grace, God does something extraordinary. And people are like blown away. They're like, this is amazing. This is amazing. God is at work here. He's answering our prayers. People are getting saved. He's doing things in people's lives. And awe came upon them. I love the words of Paul Tripp in his book that he simply calls awe. In his book, Awe, Paul Tripp says, we must not reduce Christianity to a system of theology and rules. Theology and rules will never redeem you in themselves. They were never given by God to be an end in themselves. They are a means to an end. Their purpose is to cause you to see the depth of your need and the sufficiency of Christ's work so that you might run to him in the desperation of faith, placing your hope in his grace and having your heart filled with awe of him. Consider, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, consider how God has changed your life. Consider what God is doing in your church. Let your heart be filled with awe. Look, the world needs more Christians who know how to stand in awe before God Almighty. We live in cynical times. Everyone's a cynic. I'm one of the most cynical people that I know. 
But it's, if you're always a sinner, like it's impossible to marvel in awe of God's grace when you're always a cynic. And you know what? Like because we're so cynical, we're all like mad or anxious or depressed because of it. But the people of grace who through word, community, and prayer have been strengthened in the gospel, when the gospel recaptures our sense of awe, that spills out into the world as salt and light. People, we've said already, are starving for a taste of the transcendence. So the world needs Christians who know how to stand in awe of God Almighty. The other thing that their devotion to the word and, and fellowship and communion and prayer, one thing that that produced in them is it they just multiplied. This church multiplied on mission. Read verse 46 and 47 with me. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, these disciples, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were thankful. They worshiped. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When people live their lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just their words that preach, their lives preach too. Look, that's a story. I know that that's a story of some of you here in this room. Some of you are sitting next to like your neighbor or your family member or your, your friend uh, that, that you had a front row seat to the change that Jesus made in their lives at one point. And so you said, Man, I got to check this out. I got to see what this is all about. And then you came and the same spirit of God that opened up the heart of those 3000 people to the gospel at Pentecost opened your hearts in this room. This is a little smaller scale. <laughs> but the same awesome God is just as awesome the work that he does and God's people are devoted to his word to community to the breaking of bread and the prayers God does something it preaches we become salt and light to the world and God adds to the number of saints Like that's what we pray for here at King's Cross. We want lives changed in a meaningful sense, changed in the true sense of that word, in Jesus Christ. We're not here to do just mere religion. We're not here just to play church. We want lives changed by Jesus Christ. We want entire family legacies changed by Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. And look, just to close, as I was praying over, over this, this sermon this week, there's a, there's a few words that I just want to make sure that we're encouraged with this morning. I was thinking of maybe like four different categories of, of people. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're just feeling like, man, I've been doing this church thing for a while, but I feel like my spiritual faith is just dry right now. It just feels dry. Like I don't have that sense of, of awe that passion that I once had. Like real talk, I've been there a few times over this last year. You just feel spiritually dry. 
And if that's, if that's you this morning, I want you to be encouraged by this passage. I want you to be encouraged to press into the ordinary means of grace. To, 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 to look and to, to consider the power of God's word, to devote yourself to it, to be in fellowship. And when you receive communion this morning, trust that God can do something supernatural in your heart to bring you back to that place of awe. Be encouraged that God can do that. Press into the means of grace. And when you sing, sing to the God who's worthy and let your heart be stirred by him. Maybe you're here this morning, you're in the second category where, where you've been doing this church thing for a while and, and you just feel like you're, you're, just, like you're just pretending that you're playing church, that this is a religious chore for you. My encouragement to you would be, man, would you take a step today and, and just open your Bible this week? Open the Word this week. Devote yourself to it. You might be surprised what God would do. Pray that He does something new and fresh in your heart. Or make sure that you join a home group this week. Get accountability and community as we study the book of Jonah together starting in two weeks. Maybe you're here this morning, you're in this third category where you feel like you've, you, you, you once were, were sort of passionate in this side of the way, but you sort of drifted from that. It's more of a, it's, it's not so much like a, a lack of passion than it is that you've just drifted like all, all together. And if that's you this morning, would you, you just know that there's grace. There's grace in the gospel of Jesus. We don't have to work our way in. To, to the table of God's grace. We say here that you know you don't you bring nothing to the table of the uh, uh, you bring nothing to the table of the Lord other than our, your need for grace. Know that there's grace for you. And as you receive communion after the service, think on that grace, enjoy that grace, be nourished by it. Lastly, maybe you're new to this whole Christianity thing. You're still checking this out. You're not a believer. You're not sure if you really believe in, in, in any of this, if you want to belong to a church or if you want to follow Jesus. And if that's you this morning, would you use this next time as we're receiving communion as Christians, would you use that time to consider your own need for grace? Maybe God will do something new for you. Jesus is the devoted one. Jesus is the devoted Son of God that even when we did not seek after him, he sought after us. This, this life of devotion that he calls us into, of devoted community to being a devoted church, that's what we're saved into. He came to recapture our hearts from the clutches of sin. He came to recapture our hearts, to reorient our thinking, and to reform our lives for the glory of God and the good of others. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. 
If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.